the Rowerton Center for Global Affairs at Middlebury College, this is New Frontiers. I'm Charlotte Tate, Associate Director of the Rowerton Center for Global Affairs. New Frontiers podcasts highlight research undertaken by Middlebury scholars and others on matters of international and global concern. Everything is fair game, from big tech, environmental conservation, and global security, to religion, culture, and changing work patterns. Today, Mark Williams, director of the Rowatton Center, is joined by economist Will Pyle to explore how the tumultuous years following the collapse of the Soviet Union helped shape Russians' attitudes toward capitalism and democracy in the Putin era. Will Pyle is the Frederick C. Dirks Professor of International Economics at Middlebury College. Much of his research is focused on the evolution of markets and market-supporting institutions, particularly in post-socialist countries and especially in Russia. Today, I'll be talking with Will about one of his most recent projects. It's an article he published in the journal Post-Soviet Affairs that, interestingly enough, examines Russians' political attitudes and their preferences as much as it does their economic attitudes and preferences. The article is titled, Russia's Impressionable Years, Life Experience During the Exit from Communism and Putin-Era Beliefs. Will Pyle, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you, Mark. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Why don't we dive right into it? As an economist, what initially got you interested in researching Russia? Uh, how did this happen, and what aspects of Russia's economy have you studied the most? Well, my interest in Russia came actually before my interest in, in economics, and it goes all the way back to two years of Russian language courses I took at my public high school in Seattle back in the, back in the 80s. I had a great teacher, a Russian emigre, who, um, along with teaching us Russian, got us interested in the country's culture and history. I, I went on to major in history in college, and I took several courses on Russia and eventually wrote uh, a senior thesis on a topic in 19th century Russian intellectual history. I actually only took one economics class as an undergrad and found it, uh, found it really boring, honestly. <laughs> um, after college, I went on to work at the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington, D.C., and I was there in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell, and the, the countries of Eastern Europe threw off communism and held democratic elections. It was a, it was a really exciting time. So I took a great class on the economic transition from communism to capitalism. My professor convinced me that I, um, I might want to go on and get a PhD in, in economics to better understand the whole process of abandoning one economic system for another. So as a graduate student, got into a decent PhD program and eventually wrote my dissertation on credit markets and the banking system in Russia in the 1990s. And then my research in the Russian economy, or on the Russian economy, uh, for at least the next 15 years after I left graduate school was focused on Russian businesses, as you, as you alluded to earlier, and how they navigated an economic environment in which the bedrock institutions of a, of a modern market economy, like the rule of law, including the enforcement of private property rights, were, were weak or, or compromised. Well, it sounds like a really fascinating journey that you had from an undergraduate to the uh, professional status that you have right now. Um, 
the research we're, we're talking about today here is about public opinion in Russia. But, but again, you're an economist. And so how did you get interested in researching what you are calling in this article political preferences of Russians. Is this a topic that you've been working on for some time? My interest in doing research on public opinion is, is actually relatively recent. Five years ago, I, I taught a, a first-year seminar on the old Soviet economy uh, and its collapse. One of the books that I assigned was a, an oral history by a, a Belarusian journalist, a woman by the name of Svetlana Alexievich. And the book of hers that I assigned for uh, my first-year seminar it's called Secondhand Time, and it's about how the demise of communism was experienced in Russia by very average people. And what our oral histories highlight is a, is a real nostalgia for the Soviet Union's achievements and a deep sense of loss at its collapse. It was that book, perhaps more than, than anything else um, that I read or, or heard about, that got me thinking carefully about how Russians form their worldviews, about the factors that shape their beliefs, about the way society should be ordered. And I, I couldn't help thinking that the really wrenching and, and disorienting experience of transitioning away from one socioeconomic system, communism, to another entirely different socioeconomic system, market-based capitalism, uh, like Russia went through in the early 1990s, would leave a lasting impact. And so as a researcher, uh, as an economist, I started, I started cataloging the available public opinion survey data that would allow me to connect Russians' life experiences in the 1990s to their worldviews into the 21st century. That is, to understand Russia today, to understand how Russians collectively view the world, we have to spend more time understanding the 1990s. And my sense is that certainly economists, and to a lesser extent political scientists, have forgotten the 1990s. And one of the reasons, I think, is that there's just not that much good data uh, from that decade. In the early 1990s especially, the Russian government just didn't have the capacity to collect the sorts of market-generated data that governments and other industrialized societies routinely collect. For many, many economic variables, decent government data doesn't begin until just before the turn of the 21st century. From what I'm hearing, you, you see the 1990s as a critical period where one needs to understand what's going on in Russia at that point in order to better understand what one sees coming out of Russia uh, today. On that basis, let me be a bit provocative and, and, and ask you this sort of devil's advocate question. Honestly, why should someone even care about public opinion in Russia today? Uh, why should someone care about what Russians think about their country, how it ought to be run. Um, after all, Russia is an autocracy. Uh, political freedoms are, are limited and circumscribed. Dissent is suppressed. Aren't the opinions of Russians really unrelated to how their country is actually governed and, and what Vladimir Putin decides to do? Well, that's a great question, and, and you are indeed being provocative there in, in, in asking it. There's, there's a Middlebury alum, uh, Tim Fry, and he's now a professor of political science at, uh, at Columbia University, and he's one of our, our country's leading interpreters of, of contemporary Russian politics. Anyway, he's, he's just published a, a book about Putin called, called Weak Strongman, and, and one of the points he makes, Putin wants to be feared, yes, but since repression is costly and not always effective, he also wants to be loved. 
And being popular by being responsive and sensitive to public opinion makes it less likely that he'll face challenges to his rule. There's another recent book by political scientists Sam Green and Graham Robertson that makes a very much related point. They argue that Putin's rule is it's not forced on an oppressed and unwilling public, but is in some sense co-constructed with society. Putin has been, in effect, um, lifted up above the normal push and pull of politics by, by tens of millions of Russians. Again, that's a fascinating response. Um, let's dive into the heart of your article. And let's start with the title. What are Russia's impressionable years? What does that phrase actually mean for listeners who are unacquainted with it? There's a hypothesis from social psychology that uh, one's life experiences in young adulthood, basically late teens until the mid-20s, leave a more lasting impact than if they'd occurred at another stage in life. This is often referred to as the, uh, the impressionable years hypothesis. And not too long ago, uh, two economists put the hypothesis to the test by looking into whether living through an economic downturn uh, when you were 18 to 25, whether that affected your worldview later in life. So they looked at a lot of survey data from the United States going back to the middle of the, the 20th century. And what they found was that if you were living in a part of the, the United States that was going through tough economic times, when you were in your impressionable years, you were more likely to hold progressive economic views later in life than somebody your own age that hadn't experienced that same sort of economic downturn during their impressionable years. Now, the impressionable years that I'm talking about in my article that are part of the title of the article are a bit different. I'm using that phrase to refer to what I hypothesize as a, a stage of history in which all Russians, regardless of age, were prone to form enduring memories and, and beliefs based on their own individual life experiences. I home in particular uh, on the period from 1989 to 1994. Uh, and so that's, that's the idea. So I'm, I'm cribbing a term and using it in a slightly different way than it's, than it's used traditionally. I kind of focus in on that period from, from 1989 to 1994. And it's a period that, that covers the last three years of the Soviet Union and the first three years of an independent Russia. It's a, it's a period that's bracketed on one side by the dissolution of Soviet control over Eastern Europe and the unraveling of the Soviet economy, and on the other side by the privatization of a, of a huge swath of Russia's economic base. It's a half decade in which Russian life expectancy collapsed in a way that's almost unprecedented for a, a country not experiencing war or widespread disease. It's a period in which the old rules governing how society was organized were thrown out and new ones were introduced. It's a period, as I write in the article, when so much was so new for, for so many. Russians at that time were taking it all in, learning lessons about how a market economy with private property functioned, how democracy and free elections functioned, and drawing conclusions, forming beliefs that had the potential to endure for a long time, perhaps their entire lives. That particular half decade from 89 to 94 had the potential. I hypothesize, and it's just a hypothesis, I hypothesize left a deep and lasting impression on them. How do you go about showing that there's actually a connection between what Russians experienced in life 
during those impressionable years you're talking about, which, which honestly is over a generation ago, and what they believe much more recently. So I couldn't have done it without access to a really wonderful data set. Mm -hmm. um, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development carried out a massive survey uh, across Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union in 2006. Mm -hmm. And they asked a whole bunch of questions of at least 1,000 individuals per country. And, and one set of questions had a, a retrospective or backward-in-time component to it. People were asked about life events, potential life events, and whether they had occurred in 1989, 1990, mm -hmm. 1991, each year all the way up until 2006. Which years, for instance, they had been laid off from a job? Which years they had experienced a severe decline in their, uh, in their household income, um, et cetera? Those, right. sort, those sorts of questions. Big life-changing events, big, big life events. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, people were asked also for a lot of information on their lives in, in 2006. Uh, their employment status, their income, uh, how well they felt they were doing financially relative to other people uh, in their country. So they basically collected a ton of personal information from uh, this representative sample of at least 1,000 people per country. The, the questions that I was most interested in had to do with their, their attitudes and beliefs, particularly whether they felt democracy was a, a good political system, uh, whether an economy based on markets and uh, private property was better than the alternatives, mm -hmm. and, and whether they felt uh, their government should do more to redistribute income and, and wealth. Now, these are their attitudes and beliefs circa 2006, well into the Putin years, which, right. which had begun in, in 1999. And I was particularly interested in investigating my impressionable years hypothesis that a, that a person's life experiences and experiencing economic hardships between 1989 and 1994 influenced those beliefs and attitudes with respect to democracy and a market economy and the proper role of government in redistributing income in 2006 were different as a result. I'm, I'm thinking of Russians uh, as being just incredibly sensitive to external stimuli in that period from 89 to 94 because everything was so new. Uh, and so they're learning lessons about how this new world works. They've heard and they've imagined what the world beyond the Berlin Wall was like prior to 1989. The wonders of capitalism. The wonders of Consumerism and, and prosperity. And exactly. They had, uh, they had an exaggerated sense, I think, of uh, the glories of, of life uh, to the West. Um, but they really had their antennas up. In, the, uh, in that period, that half decade. Mm -hmm. And so the, because they were extra sensitive to their initial experiences, those initial lived experiences, I'm hypothesizing that those initial experiences did get embedded in a way that maybe later experiences with markets, private property, and even democracy didn't get embedded in the same way. Well, one thing that stuck out to me in your article is that 
um, when you examine the attitudes and preferences that the Russians display, they're quite skeptical, you claim, about economic inequality. And, and presumably, I, I assume that's because since under Soviet communism, vast or routine economic inequality was rare, or at least it wasn't acknowledged uh, officially. And this raised two questions in my mind. First, hasn't economic inequality actually grown dramatically under Putin? And maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's my impression. And, and second, if that's true, then what does it tell us about how much Russians' beliefs actually shape the country's trajectory under Putin? So that's a great question, uh, a really, really good question. Um, I'm going to put a pin in it, if, if it's okay with you, sure. come back to it. And I, I'd like to finish a thought of how I actually use the survey data okay, please to, do. to illustrate the, the, uh, that the hypothesis, my hypothesis, actually, actually held up. We economists and a lot of political scientists uh, these days use statistical software. Uh, we take it to the big data sets. And, and we can look at large data sets and perform exercises that effectively allow, in this case, me to compare Russians that are similar uh, in all respects that I can observe in the data, uh, same education, same household structure, same gender, age, uh, similar economic circumstances in 2006, and then see if those who experienced economic hardship during the impressionable years, on average, felt differently from those that didn't experience economic hardship from those same impressionable years. And that's, in fact, what I find in the data. Russians who suffered between 1989 and 1994, Russians who suffered in particular because they lost their job or they suffered a severe decline in their income, they're the ones that are particularly skeptical of democracy and market economics, and they're particularly big believers in uh, a more progressive redistributionist government mm -hmm. in 2006. So they have a very different orientation than, Russia's, than Russians who didn't have the same experience of suffering back in the, those um, impressionable years. Now, interestingly, I didn't find any relationship in the data between individuals experience, experiencing uh, a job loss or a decline in income after 1994 and their beliefs in 2006. It was only in that period really? between 1989 and 1994 where we see that strong, that strong relationship. Uh, but to come back to your really good question about uh, inequality and Russian sensitivity to inequality, it, it certainly comes out in the, the, uh, the survey data from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development that Russians are unusually kind of uh, sensitive to uh, questions of economic inequality, and they're big believers relative to peoples in other countries that government should get involved in um, uh, addressing inequality. What's interesting to me about that is from, from a Western perspective, we hear a lot about the oligarchs who have um, commandeered the commanding heights of the Russian economy, uh, perhaps via the privatization of portions of the old Soviet uh, state-owned enterprises and so forth. And from a Western perspective, one hears a lot about 
the, um, the growth of inequality, and it seems to be quite dramatic, which is why I was wondering about the impact that sure, Russian sure. concerns over inequality might actually have or not have on the direction uh, that the Russian state is going under President Putin. It's, it's, it's a very natural question. Now, economists, we have ways of formally measuring inequality, and those measures just took off really rapidly in the early 1990s, and if anything, in the years since, uh, they've come down. Uh, in terms of the policy- Really, they've come down. They've come down. Uh, they're still very high. In, in terms of the policy response to, to the inequality, even in the present day, I think there are a couple points worth, worth making. First of all, Putin recognizes that there's a political payoff to knocking the rich off their, their pedestal. During his first term, uh, all the way back uh, in the early 2000s, he, uh, he launched a frontal assault against one of the big oligarchs. Um, there was one particular oligarch, a guy named Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who is the owner of the biggest private oil firm uh, in, uh, in Russia in the early 2000s, and Putin threw him in jail for 10 years uh, before sending him into exile, and that was incredibly popular, and Putin understood that that would be popular because of Russian sensitivity to, uh, to questions so of inequality. So he could use some of this to his own political advantage very, very in much a very so. practical sense. Yes, mm -hmm. very much so. And another point, in part because of the Russian public's sensitivity to economic inequality, Putin and his inner circle have gone to great lengths in the present day to conceal just how wealthy they've become. You're probably familiar with the, the, the name of uh, Alexei Navalny, mm -hmm. uh, who's been Russia's leading opposition figure for at least a decade now. Um, just in the past year, he survived an assassination attempt, and now he's... He's poisoned, wasn't he? He was, uh, he was poisoned, yes. right, um, just before getting on a plane, and then he was nursed back to health in a German hospital. But being the courageous uh, figure that he is, he went right back to Russia, got right back in the game, and right. uh, very soon after that was, was put in prison on, on trumped-up charges. Um, anyways, Navalny's popularity uh, as an opposition figure grew out of his efforts to expose the corruption and, and ill-gotten wealth mm -hmm. of Russia's governing elites. Uh, information about Russia's inequality today is something that Putin very much wants to keep hidden. Well, that reminds me of something that's been in the news of late, and that is the, the revelations about hidden wealth by powerful individuals and world leaders that have uh, been revealed with respect to the Pandora Papers. Um, can you tell us anything about that and how that might play into the sensitivity that Russians have about inequality within their country? So my understanding is, I've, I've just read the, the news stories, uh, and my understanding is that there are uh, more Russian accounts that have been unearthed than accounts from any other single country. Th these are issues they would rather not see come to light. Exactly. In right. Because of exactly what you asked about, because of Russian sensitivity right. to, uh, to questions of, of inequality. They right. really want to keep these sorts of um, these sorts of matters under wraps. When one reads your article that Russians are skeptical of inequality and and draws a line, perhaps logically, that maybe that type of public opinion would lead to state policies that might seek to diminish 
inequality or address issues of inequality, what I'm hearing you say is that it's not that the political leadership doesn't understand the sensitivities that Russians display towards inequality. It is that they do understand them and A, either don't want them to become too public and too much discussed, or B, at times might be able to use those sensitivities to, uh, po for political purposes and to their political advantage. I think that's right. Let's think about what you're addressing with respect to Russia, but in a slightly different context. Um, didn't a lot of other countries that are in Russia's part of the world also go through some really similar tough times when, when communism collapsed uh, after the Cold War ended? What do we see in those countries? What can you tell us about, you know, something about how Poles or Ukrainians or, or Georgians experienced those impressionable years. Is it similar with the Russians? Or, and have the outcomes, to your knowledge, been similar or different? So it's, it's true. Um, almost all the other countries that you mentioned, all, all the other countries in the region, uh, experienced profound economic shocks um, in the wake of the collapse of, of communism. Some mm -hmm. countries experienced even steeper declines in, in income in the early 1990s. And throughout Eastern Europe, hard times in the aftermath of um, economic liberalization were the norm. Yeah. Collapses in GDP, persistently high rates of unemployment. Um, for all the former Soviet republics, but Russia really, those economic wounds were salved, uh, at least in part, by the excitement of democracy, uh, by getting out, from under the uh, getting out from under the Soviet yoke and, and achieving political independence. Mm -hmm. Uh, but for Russians, identification with the Soviet Union was always much stronger than it was for the peoples of the other post-Soviet states. So the Soviet Union's collapse was experienced by them uh, much more as a, as a psychological law. In the survey data that I look at for the article, outside of Russia and those other countries from the former Soviet Union, I don't see the same pattern connecting personal experiences with economic hardship in the early 1990s. and personal beliefs in, in, uh, in the 2000s. Are, are you saying that the psychological dimension that you, that you see in the Russian data isn't mirrored in the data from some of the other countries? So, uh, so I am speculating, I, I don't really see the psychological dimension in the, the Russian data. I'm speculating that it's, it's there, that the fact that I see that relationship in the Russian data and I don't see it in the data uh, from these other post-Soviet countries lines up with this hypothesis that right. I have that there is kind of this combination of economic and psychological factors that's unique to, uh, to Russians and is not shared elsewhere in the post-Soviet space. D do you think that that's because Russians uh, seeing themselves as the sort of lodestone of the Soviet Union had much more to lose than some of the other countries that were grafted into the Soviet Union or satellites of the, s of the Soviet sphere of influence? The Soviet Union got started in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg. They were the cradles of, of the revolution. Um, Russians always occupied the most prominent political posts. Russians always identified uh, more with the Soviet Union than the peoples of uh, the, other, the other republics. So there was a real sense of identity tied to that, 
that that larger uh, political that project. larger political project, that larger political body uh, that the Russians felt that uh, certainly the people in the Balts, certainly uh, the Georgians, um, the Armenians, mm-hmm. the Azeris, mm-hmm. they never felt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of those people had been part of independent countries uh, before the Soviet Union ha- was even formed. And so they really kind of um, uh, felt a sense of liberation when the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, I, I'm curious about something in your uh, in your hypothesis and in the findings that you are presenting in this paper. I'm really curious to know what role, and, and it's not necessarily addressed in the paper, which is why I'm asking now, what role do you think that that time and speed might play in the process of forming worldviews? And by this I mean, do you think that it was simply the losses, the economic and the social uh, losses that Russians experienced when the Soviet Union imploded, which played the leading role in forming their worldview that you see during the Putin era? Or was it uh, the rapidity of these changes that mattered more? I think the speed of, of the changes is critical here. I, Russians really had the, the rug pulled out from under them uh, in the early 1990s. The Soviet world, uh, in many ways, was a world of, of certainty and security. Uh, incomes may not have been as high as uh, the incomes that we have here in mm-hmm. the industrialized West, but people were guaranteed a job, they were guaranteed basic health care, they were guaranteed a pension. In the early 1990s, all that was taken away almost overnight, incredibly rapidly. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a, uh, a Berkeley anthropologist, a guy by the name of Alexei Yurchak, uh, who captured that sense of a, of, a, of a wholly unexpected and almost tectonic shift in Russians' lives in a book he entitled, Everything Was Forever until it was no more. It's a great title. Given the magnitude of the changes that uh, were wrought inside what had been the Soviet Union, given the way that those changes seemed to have affected the development of worldviews and the preferences for politics and economics that uh, citizens hold later on, would you expect to see similar results if you studied a a different country um, that underwent a sort of similar loss. And here I'm thinking of, for example, suppose you studied the British, say, pre and post the loss of empire. Would you expect to see something similar uh, develop in the the mindset of uh, British citizens? Would you expect to see similar dynamics as you observed in Russia in these other contexts? That's That's a fun question. Of course, we, economists always uh, want to know if there's good data uh, to answer that question. If there was good data to answer that question, I think that would be a, a natural extension. I'm natural asking extension. you to speculate. So I'm, I'm, I, will, I will speculate, and I'll, I'll draw on somebody who's, who's smarter than me, Yegor uh, Gaidar, uh, who, who served under um, Yeltsin as Russia's prime minister in, in 1992 and was really the architect of, of the country's rapid economic transition away from communism. Just before his death, a little over uh, a decade ago, he wrote a really, really smart book called Collapse of an Empire, Lessons from Russia. And in it, he writes how difficult it can be to the national consciousness to 
to adapt to, uh, to the loss of imperial status. He pointed out that when the decline is gradual, a process that extends over decades, as was arguably the case for, uh, for Britain. It certainly the, was in, the case for in, Britain. In the yes. 20th century. Um, the elites and the public realize that coming to terms with the hopelessness, the uselessness of trying to preserve the empire uh, is, is futile. Uh, and in those cases, it's much easier to, to handle imperial decline than a sudden collapse like the, the Soviet Union uh, experienced. A second thing Gaidar pointed out was that, uh, well, his reading of history is that nostalgia for territorially integrated empires um, is always going to be stronger and longer lasting and deeper than the nostalgia for overseas empires. When the Soviet Union broke up uh, at the end of 1991, millions of ethnic Russians were cut off from Russia proper uh, and they were residing in newly independent countries like Ukraine in what used to be Russia's territorially integrated empire. Now Putin drew on that, uh, that sense of loss and frayed connections um, when he decided to annex uh, Crimea back in, in 2014. Right. Indeed, that was uh, incredibly popular. Right. And Putin's popularity, I think, was no higher than it's ever been over the past 20 years than immediately after. So the, the loss of a, of a landed empire is felt more acutely, uh, more intensely than the loss of an overseas empire. That, in turn, will have effects on the development of a worldview. You know, one of the things that, uh, that um, Gaidar expounds on uh, in making that point is that he's worried that Russia will suffer from the same sort of syndrome that Germany suffered from between the wars. Um, after World War I and uh, territories were the, the, uh, the borders separating states were redrawn uh, and some of the empires that had existed prior to World War I were dissolved. The yes. Austro-Hungarian Empire, yes. the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire uh, were dissolved and, and state boundaries were uh, redrawn. Um, a lot of Germans got left in uh, nation states outside of Germany. For instance, the Sudeten Germans yes. who were, were in Czechoslovakia. And of course, Hitler used that, the fraying of those ethnic bonds across national borders to uh, gin up nationalist sentiment and to get uh, Germans uh, fired up for his ambitions, his expansionist ambitions. And Gaidar writing in 2007, in a way that was very prescient actually, um, thought that Putin might do something similar. Might to try and reacquire influence or even territory exactly. of what had been the former Soviet and, and Union. There, not only did, uh, did Russia invade Georgia in 2008, a year after uh, Gaidar wrote those words, but using the pretext of Russians in Ukraine, he, uh, he annexed uh, Crimea right. and has supported um, surreptitiously this kind of frozen conflict in, in the Donbass in the years since. This is really fascinating. Let me bring you back to how you approach the research in your article. As, as an economist, 
uh, Will, as a scholar of Russia's economy, its economic performance, its economic transition, how is research that's based on, honestly, what we might call sort of non-standard economic tools, how is that useful? Uh, I guess what I'm really asking is, what does the approach that you've adopted in the article here help us understand about Russia's economy or its trajectory that a more standard economic approach might not fully explain or illuminate? So I'm, I'm not sure that I'd say that there's a more standard economic approach to, to the topic. Uh, economics is a discipline that's diverse in the questions that it asks and, and the methods that it uses. I do feel particularly good, particularly, uh, yeah, proud, uh, about the way that I reached out to research on Russia from other disciplines, sociology and anthropology, uh, for example, oral histories uh, as well. Those sources from, from outside my discipline were particularly influential in the way I formulated my hypothesis that Russians were particularly impressionable during uh, those years right around the Soviet collapse. To the extent that commentators uh, talk about the Yeltsin years in the 1990s today, most treat the decade as a single contiguous whole. Uh, but what my investigation of the sociological and anthropological literature allowed me to see was that Russians experienced the early 1990s very differently than they did the mid to late 1990s, even though the economy in the latter half of the decade was even, if anything, in a worse state than it had been in the earlier part of the decade. Interesting, interesting. Well, uh, what's next for you? Um, the article that we've been discussing uh, for this episode of New Frontiers was published back in January 2020, and you've been on sabbatical, I know, for the past year, so are you continuing to do research on this topic? Um, what's coming down the line? Um, so with a colleague from the Higher School of Economics uh, in Moscow, I'm working on a, a new paper uh, that also explores the, the general relationship between economic shocks and political preferences in Russia. Uh, we're looking at presidential voting patterns uh, between 1991 and, and 2000, uh, a period that bridges the before and after of market liberalization and, and privatization. There's another paper uh, that I'm working on with a colleague at Indiana University, and we're analyzing how Russians respond relative to the peoples of other countries um, that, that get at what we're calling for now um, aggressively nationalistic points of view. We're not terribly comfortable with that term yet. It's it's has kind of a negative connotation. It sounds that makes foreboding. Us, yeah, so it w we mm. might rethink that. But for now, we're calling it aggressive nationalism. And we're looking at a quarter century worth of, worth of polling data uh, from the 1990s up almost to the present day, um, focusing in on whether people agree that it's best to support their country even when it's wrong, or that their country should pursue its interests even if doing so leads to conflict with other countries. And what we're finding with our, with our data suggests that there's a real appetite for uh, expansion of military s spending, supporting their country even if it leads to military conflict, supporting their country even if they know in their heart of hearts that it's wrong, that that appetite, if anything, it's stronger prior to Putin 
uh, getting on the scene. It's much I, more endogenous than something that's been induced by it, the leader. It's more embedded in, in Russians. And I don't want to get into the kind of essentialist argument that it's always been in the Russian character to be more militarist and aggressive. I think uh, the trigger, and it's a natural trigger, and it's not a kind of store, an essentialist sort of story, is that it's the Russians experience that exit from communism in just a very particular way. Um, it's that combination of uh, being the metropole of a former imperial empire and experiencing the economic hardship. Those two things kind of mixing in together uh, gave rise to, it kind of created this brew of, of factors that gave rise to uh, a more aggressively nationalistic population. In the West, I'm not sure we treated Russia uh, with the respect that they deserved. As certainly not the respect that they felt they deserved. Certainly not the respect they felt they deserved in the 1990s. We took NATO right up to their, right up to their doorstep. And All the time um, expressing surprise that this might disquiet Russia. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think it did. Yes. And, and I think that in many ways, and that was done in the 1990s uh, by the Clinton administration. Uh, and I think there were good reasons. Uh, there were not necessarily all, there were good reasons for, for doing that. Um, can I say with certainty that, uh, that Putin wouldn't have made a move into Estonia if Estonia wasn't a member of NATO uh, like it is now? Um, no, I can't say that. Mm -hmm. Maybe, that, maybe mm -hmm. that would have occurred. But I think if we were a little bit more careful in the way that we, uh, we, we treated Russia and were a little bit more sensitive to their former status as a superpower, uh, were a little bit less triumphalist uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War's end, that that aggressive nationalist streak, or however you want to call it, may not have, have come to the fore as dramatically as it seems to have in the survey data that were we're observing. Will, your new project sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read the article that comes from it. And thank you very much for talking to us today on New Frontiers. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Will Pyle lives in Middlebury with his wife and sons, the joys of his life. While Professor Pyle grew up in Seattle, Washington, he lived in various places throughout the world, which included Japan, where he went to kindergarten. Professor Pyle has always loved music from eclectic to Americana and grew up playing the piano. He is very active in the community and has been a Meals on Wheels volunteer for over 12 years. Around town, you can often see him bicycling or catch him at a soccer or ice hockey game. <laughs>